So the word of the Lord says this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face from or hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep uh, that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was oppressed and judgment was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and that, and they made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And now we want to pay special attention to these three verses. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Saints, you may be seated. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our great God and Father, we ask that through your Spirit, or through your Son, and in your Spirit, that we behold and we grab on to every single word that you inspired your prophet to pen. Father, we ask that this morning... That although many of us have read Isaiah chapter 53 before, many of us probably can recite much of the verses. I pray that we will understand the depth and the gravity of what Isaiah is telling us. I pray, Father, that by your spirit, you will help us see your son in a more glorified and, and majestic way. Help us see your son in all of his splendor and majesty. 
Help us by your spirit. Adore your son. Help us this morning. Come under the feet of the cross or foot of the cross and behold the one who was crucified for us. The one who took away our iniquities. The one who had no deceit in his mouth. The one who did no violence, yet the most violent thing in all of history was done upon him. Help us see that one this morning. Help us understand the message of the cross. Help us understand the light in the good news of the gospel. That we this morning behold the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Help us, Father, by your spirit now. Open our eyes and mind and ears. Let this time be the most important time in our lives. Let no distractions get in our way. Not phones get in our way. Not our stomach grumbling get in our way. Not our restlessness get in our way. Not babies or infants get in our way. Let our minds be attentive to your word this morning. Help us, Holy Spirit. Let us rebuke any sort of distraction that might come our way this morning. So, Father, we ask that your spirit be with us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I hope that these servant songs of Isaiah have been much use to you. And not simply that they are a reminder of the good news of the gospel, which they are. We are all to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. But as the Puritans would say, that the scriptures, when they are preached rightly, are to be sweet honey for our souls. That yes, they are a reminder, but also they soothe our weary souls. They help us when we are in need. And I hope that learning of the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, we have seen him in such a more majestic and glorious way. We have seen the plan of salvation in such a more glorious and majestic way in the spirits applying the son's redemption to our lives and appreciating what our triune God has done for us. There's one application that we can give in light of all these servant songs is stop sinning. In light of what Christ has suffered for us, why should we keep on suffering and sin? In light of the great mystery uh, that is of the cross, that he bears our sins and he gives us his righteousness. We are to live a life as a Christian. I think many of us forget what it means to be a Christian. It means to be Christ-like. Not necessarily obeying some sort of moral code, but living the life that Jesus Christ lived. And in that, if you are obeying the law, obeying some moral code, then so be it. But I hope that as we've been going through these servant songs, yes, you have admired your Lord, but you've also wanted to live more like him. Theology, yes, is meant for us to know things, but theology is of no use if we don't put them in practice. We can know all the theology in the world and read the Bible from front cover to back cover, but if we don't put it to practice, to use, then what use really is it? And this morning, friends, I just have two points I would like for us to consider in this most famous 
and glorious of servant song. And that is, number one, the servant bruised. And number two, the servant blessed. The servant bruised. And number two, the servant blessed. As I have said, let's consider the first uh, point. That is, the servant bruised. As I have said, Isaiah 53 is undoubtedly the most famous servant songs and the prophecy of Isaiah. The words are glorious. The words are majestic. They paint for us before 700 years, before he even stepped on the scene, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Many have called Isaiah the evangelical prophet. Many say that Isaiah 53 is the first gospel, I think. Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel. But we could say that Isaiah 53 is a commentary of Genesis 3.15. We can say that Isaiah 53 tells for us, shows for us, what Jesus Christ will accomplish, not just for Israel, but for every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's a beautiful chapter. Isaiah, as we know, is the man of unclean lips. He declares that of himself in Isaiah chapter 6, after he sees this grand vision of the Lord. But with those unclean lips, has God ever used such a man to pin some of the most eloquent and heart-gripping words? Other than some chapters in the Psalms and maybe the book of Job, Has God inspired a man to write such words to bring us to our knees? That teach us, yes, about Jesus Christ, but also about ourselves. Saints, as we come to the fourth servant song of Isaiah, our hearts are immediately gripped by the vivid words the prophet paints for us. It's only as if the prophet is giving us a biography of who Jesus Christ is. Who was this man? He says in verse 14, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He says in verse 2 and 3, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Vivid pictures of what our Lord might have looked like. But also what our Lord's life was like. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Grief was his best friend. Here we have some of the most vivid descriptions of the face of our servant. But mixed in this biography, the prophet also gives us, he pins for us some of the most chilling words in all of the Bible. It's almost as if the prophet Isaiah is writing next to Stephen King. It's almost as if we are given an autopsy report of how Jesus Christ died. The servant was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. The chastisement that brought us peace. 
The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And hear these words. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that's before its shears. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. But from chapter 52 to chapter 53, verse 9. The servant of the Lord is described to us as a man who lived a great life of suffering that died an even greater death. But as we come to verse 10, the prophet takes the spotlight off the servant of the Lord and places it on the Lord himself. The focus is on, yes, the son, but primarily the focus is on the father. Consider with me the opening words of verse 10. It reads, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. After Isaiah has just described to us the most violent and gruesome death in all of mankind, the death of Jesus Christ, he answers the question that might be on everyone's mind. That is, who's the blame? Who's the blame for such a gruesome death? Who are the suspects? Who's responsible for such a violent death? Whose finger can we point to? He says in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. What mystery is that? Who's the blame? It was the Lord who crushed the servant of the Lord. It was the father that crushed, that bruised his only begotten son. And friends, is this not what the whole of Revelation pictures for us? This is nothing new, but this is just an elaboration of what the entire Old Testament has been saying the entire time. What do we read in Genesis 22? That Abraham, when he sacrifices his son Isaac, the giving of his son is analogous to the father giving his only begotten son to be a sacrifice for sin. In Zechariah chapter 3, a sermon that we have touched on before, what does the Lord say? Awake, O sword, against my servant, against the man who stands next to me. The father says, awake, O sword, not against the sinner, but against the one who is his equal. Against his only son, the one who has been his apple of his eye for all eternity. And as we come to the New Testament, this picture for us is painted even more clearer, is it not? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.32, he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. The father did not spare his own son. He gave his own son. Who was the architect? Who was the planner? Whose hand delivered over Jesus Christ? It was the father. It was the father who gave his son to be slaughtered. Who led that lamb to be slaughtered? It was the father. The 19th century preacher Octavius Winslow has said it best. 
Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. It was ultimately the Father who crushed his son. And friends, this is the first truth that we are to learn from verse 10. Jesus was not merely in the wrong place at the wrong time. His death wasn't by accident or by random. It wasn't by chance, but the death of Christ finds its origins in the eternal plan of God. It's God's eternal plan, his decree, his will to crush his servant. But consider with me the words that the Holy Spirit inspires the prophet to pen. He says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The ESV does a wonderful job in translating the first clause of this text. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And friends, this speaks of the covenant that was made between the three persons of the Trinity in eternity past. A point that we have made throughout this entire uh, series in the servant songs. The covenant of redemption screams from the pen of the prophet Isaiah. This will of the Lord to crush his servant was a will that was not brought about as a reaction to Adam's fall, a point we've also been making throughout this series. It wasn't a reaction to what Adam has done. The Lord's will to crush his servant wasn't a will that was devised in time and space. After Adam's fall, God did not in heaven scratch his head and figure out how to make everything right. Our God is not a reactionary God. We did nothing to cause such plan to be made. But rather for the glory of the triune God, the Lord from all eternity chose to crush his servant. From all eternity. This has been the plan of God. This is what Peter says in Acts 2, 23. Just this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was delivered up according to the decree, the foreknowledge, the predestination of God. In the ages of eternity, there was a business transacted between the Father, Son, and Spirit. There was something that they talked about. There was a plan that was formed. There were promises that were made. The father promises that he would take his son's hand and as Isaiah 42, 6 says, hold his hand and keep it. The son promises that he will obey, obey his father's call to suffering. And as Isaiah 50, verse 5 says, he will not be rebellious. And the spirit promises to uphold his son as it is said in Isaiah 42, 1. These are all servant songs, by the way. For the glory of their name. And for the salvation and recovery of God's elect. Think about that. Recovery of God's elects before Adam fell in the garden. The covenant of redemption was made. The covenant of redemption was formed. And friends, we can amen this glorious news because it is. It's beautiful, is it not? The triune God. Planning to save us. But what baffles my mind is not 
the triune God forming this plan. But what baffles my mind is how this plan will be brought about. It's not the covenant of redemption itself that baffles my mind. It's how the covenant of redemption will be played out in history that baffles my mind. The way to glory is by way of the Father crushing his incarnate Son. This is how we will receive glory. It is by the Father putting his Son to grief. It is the Father who will strike his sword of justice against his Son. And saints, is this not what caused our Christ the deepest anguish in his soul? Jesus Christ knew the plan that was made before the foundation of the world. He knew all that was going to be brought about through his mediatorial office and work. But saints, it wasn't the nails. It wasn't the beatings. It wasn't the crown of thorns. It wasn't the mockings. It wasn't the spitting on his face. It wasn't even the prolonged time upon the cross. But it was the prospect of his father letting go of his hand for one second that caused our Lord to fall on his face in the garden of Gethsemane and pray and plead, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. That's what it means to be crushed by the father. It means that for one second, Jesus Christ was out was without the presence of his father. Jesus knew what it meant for the servant to be crushed by the Lord. He read Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10. He had it memorized in his head and the thing about Christ is he did not want to experience it. Friends, do you know what it means to be forsaken by God? You probably don't. But Jesus Christ does. Do you know what it means to be crushed by the Lord? Jesus Christ does. Do you know what it feels like for a loved one to hurt you? I'm sure you do. But Jesus Christ does as well. Friends, this crushing of the servant was something that was planned before the foundation of the world. And friends, I would even argue that there was no other way. There was no other way that men could be reconciled to God except if the eternal God would take on human flesh and offer up a sacrifice that would appease the eternal justice and wrath of God. What can you do in and of yourself? You are a finite creature even if you would die even for yourself, how long would that last? You cannot offer up an infinite sacrifice to an infinite God. And again, that's what we read here, is that the servant was crushed in order to appease the wrath of God. But there is another way verse 10 can be read. Yes, it was the will of the Lord to crush his servant. This plan that was made in eternity past 
was for the father to crush his only begotten son. But in many ways, the ESV does a a disservice because it softens the blow of the message of the prophet Isaiah. It softens it up a little bit. And if you have a King James Version or a New American Standard, you know what I mean. Consider with me how the King James renders this verse. It says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Notice, instead of the word will, it says it pleased. Just to heighten the mystery of all mysteries, what are you saying? It pleased the Lord to bruise his son? Friends, isn't that not a startling way to put it? I like will. I would even like it was his purpose. But to read, it was, it was, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. If these words were found anywhere else in literature, they would shock our deepest sensitivities. Just imagine if we were to change the nouns and pronouns slightly. We would be utterly disgusted of what we are reading. We would close the book right away. Imagine reading this. It pleased the teacher to bruise the student. It pleased the policeman to bruise the citizen. It pleased the father to bruise his child. It pleased the husband, to bruise his wife. Yes, the same face as you are giving me now is the same face that we all should have when we hear of such disgusting words. But to add to the perplexity of all this, it pleased the Lord to bruise the only innocent man who's ever lived. Maybe the child deserved to be bruised. God forbid, maybe the wife had something coming to her. I don't advocate hitting women. Maybe the citizen did something unlawfully and the officer was forced to bruise the citizen. But there was no deceit or violence found in this man. There was nothing that he did to earn a bruising. I think when we hear of young babies dying or when people dying, whether they be young or old or people getting raped or these horrendous things happening, we might ask, how can God allow such thing happen? He's so young. She's so young. He's so old. He had a great life ahead of him. But friends, think about Jesus Christ for one second. He was... Innocent of all charges. He was innocent beyond innocent. There was no sin found in him. Yet it was the Lord who crushed him. And he was pleased in doing so. Now what does this mean? What does it mean that it was, it pleased the Lord to bruise his servant? What does that mean? Does it mean that the father is cruel and cold hearted? Does it mean that 
while he was pouring out his wrath upon his son on the cross, he was in heaven enjoying himself. He might have been even sadistically laughing out as his servant was suffering. Does it mean, as the atheists say, that God is arbitrary and he's evil? He cannot be good in either in any way possible. Does it mean that God is evil? Well, friends, whatever it means, it doesn't mean those three options that I gave you. It doesn't mean that the father is evil. It doesn't mean that the father was laughing as his son was as his son was on the cross suffering for us. It doesn't mean that he was in heaven getting his jollies while his son was being bruised by his divine hand. So what does it mean? Listen, saints, God's delight in God's pleasure in crushing his son was not in his plan, but it was in his purpose. It was not in his son's agony that caused great pleasure in our Lord, but it was in his son's accomplishment. It was not in the suffering, but it was in the salvation. It was the outcome that pleased God, not the pain. God delighted not in the agony, but he delighted in the atonement. Look at my son. It was the son. It was what he accomplished by his substitutionary death that brought God great delight. In fact, you might disagree with me, but I would even go so far to say that as the father was pouring out his wrath upon the son, he was never more pleased with his son. If there was any a time when the father was more proud of his son, it was on the cross at Calvary. At the very same moment when the son was being judged as our covenant head, as our sin bearer, the father never more loved his son. Look at my boy. Look at his obedience. Look at the great length he went to to show his love for me. How was the father pleased with his son? Why was he pleased with his son? Because on the cross, the son shows how much he truly loves his father. He shows how much I obey you. This is how much. This is how much I have faith in your eternal plan. Why was the father pleased in bruising his son? Because as Paul says in Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I wouldn't be a good preacher and theologian if I didn't end with this. Many people read this text and they would say that, well, the father bruising his son is nothing but divine cosmic child abuse. How can you say that it was the will of the father to bruise his son? Is that not child abuse? Well, it's only child abuse if the will of the son is not also the will of the father. So when we say that it was the father's will to crush his servant... 
we aren't to think that it wasn't the son's will also to be crushed by his father. Just as it was the will of the father to bruise his son, it was the will of the son to be bruised by his father. There was one will, one plan. It's not as if the father plans something and the the son says, no, I I don't want to go through that. But the son voluntarily accepts the will of the father because it is his own will that he's accepting. It's not child abuse. It's the most glorious way the triune God could redeem those who are dead in Adam. But also we see the great love that the father has for us. And we see that in the second point, as we consider the servant, uh, servant's blessing, the servant's blessing. One theologian has said, it's a terrible thing to speak of the cross of Christ. But it's a terrible thing not to speak of the cross of Christ. Think about that phrase for a moment. It's a terrible thing to speak of the death of Jesus Christ. But it's a terrible thing not to speak of the death of Jesus Christ. Friends, I think when we think about the cross, we wear them on our necks. We tattoo them on our bodies. We put them as the backdrop on our Facebook page. But I think we can forget that the cross was the execution chair of its time. That the cross was the lethal injection of its day. It was reserved for the most violent of criminals. And on its people died the most excruciating death. The cross is a terrible thing to speak of. Because it is on that cross where Jesus Christ was stricken and smitten by God. Terrible thing, is it not? But the cross is a terrible thing not to speak of. Because it is on the cross where we see the greatest achievement in all of history take place. Who would have ever thought that one could live perfectly to the law of God? Who would have ever thought that one could offer a perfect sacrifice for sin? Who would have ever thought that one could undo what Adam has done? And what we see on the cross is Jesus Christ achieves something that others before him failed to obtain. All others tried to reach, but weren't strong enough. They weren't obedient enough. They weren't holy enough. But what we have in the latter part of verse 10, moving to verse 12, is some of the most glorious verses in all of the Bible. What did Christ achieve on the cross? What was it that made his father please the bruise him? Let's consider the two achievements that happened on the cross. First, let's consider what Christ achieved for himself. Look at me at the last line um, at verse 10, or I think it's the third line. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What did Christ achieve for himself on the cross? What did Christ win? His reward was an offspring. His reward was an offspring. 
As we know that Jesus Christ was our sin bearer. He was the only innocent man who ever lived. He didn't need to die for the forgiveness of sins. But he died for the sins of others. He was our covenant head who represented us in all points of his life. All that he did. Yes, Jesus did out of love for his father. But we are not to neglect that all of what Christ did, he did for the love of his own. Yes, it was out of love for his father. But saints, it was for love for you. Love for you that Jesus went to such great lengths. To bring us back to the Father. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus loved all those who were given to him by the Father. Just as Jesus knows the end from the beginning, just as he knows every grain of sand that's upon the seashore, just as he knows every hair that's upon my head, he knows his own. But this knowing is much more deeper than a simple knowledge of who we are. He loved us. Not the, not the love that you have for your mother. Not the love that you have for your grandma. Or the love that I have for my son. But this love is an, it's an impassable love. It doesn't go through mood swings. It's an unchanging love. Whatever I do cannot change his love for me. It's a perfect love. It's a simple love. He doesn't depend on me loving him in order for him to love me back. It's an utterly different type of love that we creatures have. It's a creator love. It's an infinite holy love. In the ages of eternity, Jesus loved his own. He loved his own when Adam fell in the garden. Yes, Jesus loved Israel, but there was an Israel within Israel that always had a special place in his heart. And in the fullness of time, from heaven he came and he sought his own. The husband came for his bride. The parent came for his children. And the victory we see on the cross is Jesus Windsor himself more than just a people group. He wins more than just a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. He births an offspring. He wins a seed. From one fruit, Jesus Christ reaps a royal harvest. He wins for himself and obtains all the spiritual seeds of Abraham. He brings, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, many sons the glory. But notice what the text says. It says he will see. He will see his offspring. What will Christ see concerning us? He will see his children. He will see you if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. He will see you fully clothed in his own righteous apparel. He will see you not in Adam, the guilty, but he will see you in himself, the innocent. He will not see you in those filthy garments that you have obtained in Adam and by Adam, but he will see you clothed in his own righteous apparel. He will see us without stain, without spot, without wrinkle. 
as a bride comes before her groom on that wedding day, he will see us in that way. When Christ sees his seed, ultimately, what will he see? He will see himself. For we will be like him. But in addition to Christ obtaining a seed, we read in verse 10, he shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. These words foretell the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. The reward of his perfect life and substitutionary death was a resurrected, glorified life. It's what Adam fell to obtain. Christ obtains for us. And friends, is this not what's motivated our Lord throughout his entire ministry? It's almost as if throughout the entire ministry of Jesus Christ, he was, he was playing in his head when that tomb would be rolled away. He says in John 17, 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, before the death, before the sufferings. He's already speaking of his resurrection and ascension. He says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 24, 7, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. Jesus constantly spoke of his resurrection. Why, saint? Because that is what gave him hope. He leaned on the words of Isaiah 50, verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Side note. I hope that that's your hope in this life and the one that's to come. I hope that you have Isaiah 50 verse 8 tattooed on your heart. That he who vindicates me is near. Our hope, saints, is not in this life, but it's the one that's to come. When not just our souls, but bodily, we will be resurrected from the dead. Christ is the first fruits. We know that because Christ has been raised, all those who are found in him will be raised. And what we see at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, beautiful picture, is the father vindicating his son before the world. The resurrection of Christ is, I like to think of it in less words, in fact, in no words, is echoing what the father said at Christ's baptism. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. The resurrection of Christ screams that. Look at my boy. Look at him dressed in all white. There's a reason why his disciples couldn't recognize him. There's a reason why he left his grave clothes behind. The father took delight to prolong his son's days because the son in his life took delight in obeying his father. That is true of us. You honor God in this life and he will honor you in the one that's to come. But what we see in these verses is that Jesus Christ doesn't just merit an inheritance for himself. He doesn't earn something just for himself that he is just to keep. But he earns something for us. Look at, look at verse 11, if you would. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Here the servant is called the righteous one. Because only the righteous one can atone for the unrighteous ones. Only one who is without sin, free from sin, could make clean all those who all they knew was sin. Saints, what does Christ win for us? In simple terms, he wins for us the words of Paul in Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ breaks down every wall, every barrier, every fence, every gate between us and holy God. On the cross, he takes holy God and he takes sinful man and he brings them together once again. Once again, the father walks amongst his creation, the garden. That is what Mary says when he sees Jesus, right? She thinks she, he's the gardener. Once again, creation and the creator are at peace. Without the possibility of a serpent crawling and devising some plan to let go of our hand from God's divine hand. Jesus Christ wins for us a status that we did not have. The Apostle Paul is clear in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 13, verse 23, can an Ethiopian change his skin, a leopard his spots? If there's anything that the Bible is clear about, it's this, that if you are in Adam, then you are dead in your sin. If there's anything that the Bible makes crystal clear is that you cannot do anything in and of yourself to change yourself. But the sweet news of the gospel is not merely Jesus comes and dies for us. That's great. But the sweet honey to the gospel is that all that is mine is given to him. And all that is his is given to me. (laughs) Every action obeying the law. Every thought, every word, his death, his resurrection is accredited to my account. He takes us out of a negative balance and he fills us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This is what John Calvin called the wonderful exchange. Luther called this the great exchange. Here, Jesus Christ on the cross takes our weaknesses and he gives to us his strength. On the cross, Jesus Christ gives to us all of his wealth. We give to him all of our poverty. We give to him all of our hell and he gives to us the glories of heaven. And what is the outcome of the cross? Is that the spoiled sinner is now the covered Christian. Those who were as spoiled in Adam are now clean in Christ. 
The Apostle Paul sums this up well in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him who knew no, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In my place, condemned he stood. Friends, when you understand that, then you're a Christian. When you understand that in your place, condemned he stood, you understand the heart of the gospel. You understand the character of God. You understand the great length that the triune God went for you to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from God. But saints, the work of the cross or the work of Christ doesn't stop at the cross. And I think at times when we highlight the finished work of Jesus Christ, we can do so and ignore the ongoing work of Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 23 to 25, the former priests were many in number, but because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, But he, Jesus Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And friends, this truth is brought out at the last verse of verse 12. Look at the ending of verse 12 if you would. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. After this, this is going to be your favorite line in all of Isaiah 53. The last verse in particular speaks of the ongoing work of our Savior in Jesus Christ. Theologians call this the the, uh, finished yet ongoing work of Jesus Christ. His priestly work, his, his work that he's doing right now. The text reads, he makes intercession for those Whom he saves. Now, what does that mean? He makes intercession for them. Well, it doesn't mean that on bended knee he's pleading to the Father. It doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is before the throne of God and he's on one bended knee or maybe two bended knees and he's praying for us and pleading for us. Christ's prayers is not his intercession, but hear me now it's his presence. The prayers of Christ are not his intercession, but it's his presence. As the Father beholds the Son, he sees all that the Son has won on his people. The Son doesn't have to say one word. By his presence alone, he intercedes on our behalf. As the Father beholds the Son, he sees all the merits and benefits that the Son won for us. And friends, Isn't the ending of verse 12 a beautiful and glorious way to complete such verses? Is it not the most glorious way? Think about this. At verse 10, we began in eternity past. We spoke of the Father's will that began in the ages of eternity. We went into the deep darkness of what it means for the Father to plan something the Son to plan something, and the Spirit to plan something. At verse 11, we saw the past accomplishment of the suffering servant. So we saw that plan in action. And as we come to verse 12, we have a glimpse of eternity future. 
We go from one end of the spectrum in verse 10 to the other end of the spectrum in verse 12. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world in verse 10. The servant, the suffering servant in verse 11 is now our great high priest in verse 12. What we have in these three verses is the complete, finished, yet ongoing work of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel in this three verses. So in closing, saints, what do we take away from these three magnificent verses? In fact, what do we take away from the entire series of the servant songs? The one thing that I can say is how deep and how vast and how wide the love of God is for sinners. It was God's wrath that called forth his son to strike him down. But it was the love of God that called forth his son to save sinners. It was wrath that striked our Savior down. But it was love that raised him up again. The Father, out of love, sends his Son to save his people. And yes, it was the will of the Father to crush the servant. Yes, I get that. But saints, we aren't to think that on the cross, Jesus is trying to win the Father's love for us. When Christ is on the cross, he's not saying, look, Father, please love them, care for them, save them. But rather, from the pulpit of the cross, the Father preaches his love for us. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the debt that he did not owe. And we receive that that we do not deserve. Through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, the father screams to us the words of Jeremiah 31, 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. That's what the cross screams. It screams the love of the father in crushing his son. It shows the love of the son in obeying his father. It shows the obedience of the Son. It shows how much the Father, Son, and Spirit detest sin. Saints, in light of all this, in light of this four-part series, if someone was to ask you, I've been reading Isaiah chapter 53, what in the world is this all about? I think a simple answer is it's about the triune God's love for saving sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful.